chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. Please join me once again in a brief time of prayer. Our gracious God, Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray, Lord God, that you would be with us here in this place, and we pray um, particularly as we reflect upon the passage that was just read that we are about to walk through We pray that your Holy Spirit would illuminate our minds, Lord. We pray that your Holy Spirit would be our guide and our teacher and our instructor. We pray that your Holy Spirit would enable us to understand the deep truths of Scripture and that your Holy Spirit would enable us to rightly divide and understand the Word of God, so that through it all, you would receive the greatest amount of glory through our understanding of you and your Son and all that you have and are doing in our lives and in redemptive history. We pray, Lord God, that you would receive all of the glory and the credit and the honor We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So uh, as a child, I did not have the uh, the privilege, uh, the blessing of growing up in a Christian home. I grew up, was raised in a nominal Catholic home, uh, you know, the kind that went to church twice a year uh, during the important uh, holidays and... um, and so rarely did we go, but we were uh, a professing Catholic kind of uh, family. And uh, so grew up in a typical um, kind of uh, Catholic home where our home had uh, many uh, statues around in the living room and bedrooms and portraits of uh, saints on uh, the wall and, and candles that were lit uh, for each of these saints for various reasons. But all of that is to say that uh, I did grow up with a, a, a Christian influence, at least in a general sense, being exposed to uh, the teachings of Christianity, and there was a Bible in our home. Um, we never really used it or read from it. It was just there to hold when you prayed or uh, did something like that. But I do remember as a child uh, once opening it to, to read it. And uh, I remember as I read, thinking to myself, this is so confusing. I have, I have no idea what this says. This, this is like a different, but it was in English, but I had no idea 
what I was reading. It made no sense to me. Now, in the sake of fairness, uh, I don't remember what I opened up to, so it may have been the middle of Ezekiel. It could have been the Song of Solomon. Your neck is like an ivory tower. Your teeth are like wool. What? This crazy talk. What is this? I don't know what, what I read, but I do know that it made no sense to me. And then someone shared the gospel with me. And uh, I remember hearing the gospel for the first time. And as I was listening to this person talk to me from the Bible, actually take me to Scripture, I remember thinking to myself, I want this. This makes sense. This is what I've been looking for. Because I'm a sinner. I know I'm a sinner. You don't have to convince me that I'm going to hell. I just need to figure out how do I avoid it. And I was not getting any of that from the Catholic Church. But what this person was communicating to me made complete sense. And so, God grabbed a hold of my life, grabbed a hold of my heart, and things have been radically different ever since. But when I got saved, or when God saved me, I should say, that individual who communicated the gospel with me gave me some basic discipleship instructions, discipleship instructions that I still follow even today. This is over 30 years later. I've been walking with the Lord, and these are the same discipleship instructions that I continue to give to others when I lead people to the Lord because they're wise, they're biblical, and they work. And the first thing he said to me was, you need to pray every day. Every day you need to spend time in prayer, asking God to forgive you of your sins, asking God to help you live the Christian life, of course, expressing your concerns to him, asking him for help in various things. I still do that every day. We need to spend time communing with God. The second thing he said to me was, you need to find a good church. You need to be in church every Sunday. It's important for accountability. It's important to be fed. It's important to have those friends around you who can encourage you as you live the Christian life. Then the third thing he said to me was, you need to read the Bible every day. In fact, what he said to me was, you need to start in the Gospel of John Read at least one chapter a day. You can read more if you like, but read one chapter a day through the Gospel of John. When you're done with John, go back to Matthew chapter 1. And then begin reading through the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke. Read John again. Continue all the way through to the end. And when you get to the end, you can go back to the beginning of the Old Testament and begin reading through Genesis so that you can understand the Old Testament and the background to the New Testament and the background to Christ. But all the while, you still need to be reading at least one chapter a day in the New Testament while you are reading from the Old. I continue to follow that even to this day. And those are the same instructions that I give to people when I lead them to Christ. I tell them the exact same thing. Start in John. Then go to Matthew. Read to the end. Then go to the beginning of the Old Testament. But stay in the New and read the Bible every single day because you need it. It's good advice. 
I still do that even today. But I remember when he said that to me. You need to read the Bible every day. Uh-oh. That's, that's where we're going to have some trouble, right? I've tried that, but uh, I don't know. If you think that's what I need to do, I'll, I'll, I'll give it a go. The next day, I was amazed. When I opened up the Bible and began reading it, I understood it. It made sense. I knew what they were talking about. Now, I didn't understand all of it, right? Even today, 30 years later, I've been studying the Bible for 30 years. There is still much about God that I don't understand. I totally now understand what Spurgeon meant when he said, the more I study the things of God, the more I realize how little I know of God. Because God is inexhaustible. But nonetheless, the, pay, the words just seemed to leap out at me. They spoke to me. I understood what was being communicated. I understood how I was supposed to live. The second thing that I found amazing after my conversion is that I thought, this is great news, the gospel. I mean, it is good news, right? This is great news. What a bargain. You're telling me that the only thing I have to do to have eternal life is just believe that Christ died on the cross for my sins. Admit that I'm a sinner, which that's easy to do. I don't no problem there. And believe that Christ died on the cross to pay for my sins. That's it? I don't have to say a thousand memorized prayers. I don't have to crawl across broken glass on my knees. I don't have to jump through a bunch of hoops. No. It's faith alone and Christ alone. I thought, man, this is great news. So I began sharing this great news with my friends and with my family, and they just didn't get it. No matter how hard I tried, the gospel made no sense to them. They looked at me like I was speaking a different language. I might as well have been speaking German or Portuguese to them. What what are you talking about? What have you been... Come here, let me smell your breath. What, What are you drinking? Or it was offensive. They were offended. It just wasn't appealing. And that was puzzling to me. Because I thought to myself, this can't be a problem with them. Because I'm speaking English, right? I'm using a language that I know that they can understand. And placing faith in Christ is a no-brainer. I mean, eternal life for believing in Jesus. What's there to think about? What's the struggle? You know, if I said to them, hey, I know where you can get a million dollars. There's a guy down the street who's simply handing out a million dollars if you'll just go to him in faith, believing that he will give you a million dollars if you ask him for it, I guarantee people would flock there. They would flock. They'd run. 
If for no other reason to figure out, is he telling the truth? I got to go check this out. But then tell people, I know how you can have eternal life. And all you have to do is go to Christ in faith, believing that he will give you eternal life. I'm offended. Why would you say that to me? Get out of my life. Confusing. Didn't make any sense to me. And so I thought to myself, the problem must be with me. It's got to be with me. I either need to get better at explaining this. I mean, I, I must be butchering the gospel. I got to get better at explaining this or defending it, or I got to figure out a better way to answer the tough questions that they're throwing out at me. There were many, many a times when I would walk away from gospel conversations feeling so discouraged. Man, I am such a monumental failure at this Christian thing. I've got to get better at this. And then I came to understand 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 to 16, amongst other passages in the Bible. But this one in particular, for me, was like Martin Luther finally understanding Romans 1, 16 and 17, where he said once he finally understood those two verses, it was as if the gates of heaven opened wide and he entered in. His experience had to do with salvation. Mine had to do with proclaiming the gospel. And thus, for me, when I finally came to understand what Paul was talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 to 16, I felt this tremendous weight of guilt and discouragement just lifted off of me because I realized that it's not about me. It's not about how I communicate the gospel to people. It's not about how I answer questions. It's not about how much knowledge I have up here. Whether people come to understand the gospel of Jesus Christ and the things of God has everything to do with God. And you see, Paul, Paul is now, in this text, going to get to the root of the problem in Corinth. He's been working his way there. And he's now going to get to, root, to the root of their problem because the root of their problem in Corinth is not that they are listening to worldly wisdom. That is really not the core of their problem. That's really just a symptom of their problem. Rather, the root of their problem is not being able to understand the things of God. Because if you can't understand the things of God, then you have no choice but to listen to the world. Because there's only two sources of information in this universe, God or the world. And so Paul now gets to the root of their problem. And in fact, he's going to drive this point home to its logical conclusion in the very next section, chapter 3, verses 1 to 4. We'll look at that next week. But Paul will actually get to where he questions their salvation in the next section. And so he says in verse 14, 
The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Well, first of all, what does he mean by the natural person? The Greek phrase there is sukikos anthropos. And uh, it's interesting that this is the only place in the entire New Testament where that phrase appears, natural person. It appears nowhere else. Paul is the only one who uses it. Now, the word for person is the normal word, anthropos, nothing interesting or unique about that. The Greek word anthropos means man or person or mankind, and that is the basic meaning. But the word for natural in the Greek that Paul uses can mean either in a human or physical state, your natural state of being, or it can refer to being worldly-minded. Now, it's it's doubtful that Paul means in a human or physical state. I don't think that's what he means when he says the natural person. He doesn't mean the person who is in a physical state of existence. And I say that because he is contrasting the natural person with the spiritual person in verse 15, right? Then he says the spiritual person in verse 15. So unless the spiritual person is the person that exists only in the spiritual world, those who are dead and in heaven, which I don't think that's what he means by the spiritual person, I don't think by the natural person he means the person who simply exists in a physical state of existence. More likely, he has in mind the idea of being worldly-minded. I'll give you two places where I am getting that from, because I did say that this is the only place this phrase occurs. So there's nowhere else we can go to see how does Paul use this phrase elsewhere. But we can see how this word, this word natural, sukikos, is used in other places in the New Testament. For example, James chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. James writes this, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but it is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. The word unspiritual is the same Greek word that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 2.14. Notice he's putting those between earthly and demonic. So the natural person is the person that is influenced by the demonic world. Also, another place where we get a good understanding of what Paul might be talking about is Jude, verses 17 to 19. Jude uses this Greek word, sukikos. Verse 17, he says, But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time, there will be scoffers following their own ungodly 
passions, right? We're talking about unbelievers. Clearly, it is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. Devoid of the Spirit. They don't have the Holy Spirit. Well, the word worldly people, that word worldly is our Greek word, sukikos. And these individuals are individuals who are devoid of the Spirit. All of that is to say that in verse 14 of 1 Corinthians chapter 2, when Paul says the natural person, he is talking about the unbeliever. What he's talking about? He's talking about someone who is not saved, someone who is devoid of the Holy Spirit. Those who are in their natural state of existence before God gets a hold of them. That's what he means by that, right? All unbelievers, before God gets a hold of them, their natural condition is, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, 3, we are by nature children of wrath, devoid of the Holy Spirit. And so Paul says three things in this first verse regarding the unbeliever as he relates to the things of God. First, he says he does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, foolishness. Second, he says he is not able, that is, he does not possess the ability to understand the things of God. And thirdly, he says the things of God are spiritually discerned. They're encrypted. So what I want to do this morning is take a look at each of these one at a time. And the first thing that Paul says is that the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. Now, the first thing that needs to be noticed is the definite language that Paul is using. Paul does not say the natural person struggles to accept the things of the Spirit of God. That's not what he says. He doesn't say the natural person is somewhat confused by the things of the Spirit of God. No, he says the natural person does not does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. The Bible uses this kind of strong language in many different places. One of which is Romans chapter 8, verses 6 and 7. Scripture says this, For to set the mind on the flesh is death. Right? The unbelieving mind. If your mind is set on the flesh, where that's going to get you is eternal death. But to set the mind on the Spirit, that is the Holy Spirit, is life and peace. Verse 7, for the mind that is set on the flesh, that is the unbeliever, listen, is hostile to God. Is hostile to God. Not just indifferent to God. The unbelieving mind is hostile to the things of God. Most of them won't admit that. But according to Scripture, which I believe to be true and accurate, 
Unbelievers in their heart of hearts are shaking their fist at God and saying, stay out of my life. Let me live the way I want to live. The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. It doesn't possess the ability. Those who are in the flesh, listen, cannot please God. Cannot please God. That's some strong language. And I don't think Paul is using hyperbole. I don't think he's exaggerating. I don't think he's embellishing. I think Paul is being accurate. Because when the Bible says it does not submit to God's law, understand we're not just talking about the Ten Commandments. Because everything that God communicates as his will for humanity is law. God does not issue suggestions. God does not issue recommendations. When God communicates his will for humanity, that is law. It is the law of God. And the very first commandment that Jesus speaks when he begins his ministry in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, he comes out of the wilderness, begins to preach, and the very first words out of Jesus' mouth is, repent and believe upon the gospel for the kingdom of God is at hand. That's a commandment. Repent and believe. All human beings are commanded to bow the knee to the lordship of Jesus Christ and become a follower of Christ. Yet we are told that the mind set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. It cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. They cannot do that which is pleasing to God, either in their mind, by their words, by their actions. Even when they do something that is good, it is not pleasing to God because that which proceeds, that which does not proceed from faith is sin, according to Romans. Paul says, whether you eat, drink, or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. When an unbeliever does something that is good, but is not for God's glory, then it is a sin. Because it means they're doing it for their own glory. They want to look good, or they want to feel good, but they're not doing it for God's glory. And so it is a sin. Secondly, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.14, that the natural person is not able does not possess the ability, not able to understand the things of God. It is not possible because he doesn't possess the ability. Paul makes that emphatically clear. 
2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, And if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Unbelievers are being actively blinded by the devil from seeing the light of the gospel. They've got blinders on that they are incapable of removing themselves. And we know that because of what we just read in Romans chapter 8, verses 6 and 7. So for the unbeliever, when you talk to them about the things of God, it's like going to a blind person who is 100% completely blind and giving them a gospel track and saying, just read this. And it'll make sense, right? They're going to look at you like, are you an idiot? I'm blind. Why are you giving me something to read? But if you just try really hard, if you just will yourself to read it, then you can do it. Because there's just a decision that you have. You just have to decide to read, they're going to look at you like you're even more an idiot. Because it doesn't matter how much they will or decide or think or wish, they are incapable of seeing. That's what Paul is communicating regarding the natural person. And then he says the things of God are spiritually discerned. In verse 14, the things of God are spiritually discerned. They are encrypted. In other words, the unbelieving mind is not able to understand the things of God, not because it does not possess the capacity, but because it does not possess the ability. It does not possess the ability. What do I mean by that? When you talk to an unbeliever about the gospel or the things of God, when they read the Bible like I read the Bible as a child, on one level they can understand what you're saying because you are speaking in English. To some extent they get what you're saying. They know you're not talking about Mickey Mouse, you're talking about God. And they know you're not talking about when you die, you get to go to McDonald's. They understand you're talking about some spiritual place where our spirits go. They can pick up on the words that you're using. You're talking about God and Jesus and dying on a, a cross. And I've, I've seen those and maybe even seen pictures. So I kind of I know what you're talking about. But at the same time, I don't know what you're talking about. At the same time, it, it doesn't make any sense. You see, they have the capacity. In other words, they have a brain, and they have ears, and they have eyes. They've got the physical capacity, but they don't have the ability. Let me give you an illustration. 
Best illustration I could, could come, up with, come up with. It would be like most of us, maybe not all of us, there might be a few where this analogy doesn't hold true, but for most of us, if we were to sit through a two-hour lecture by a scientific professor, one of the smartest ones in the world, giving a lecture on quantum physics, most of us, myself included, would sit there and say to ourselves, to an extent, I kind of understand what he's saying because he's speaking in English, right? I, I, I hear the words, but it wouldn't be but more than a few minutes into the, con- the, the lecture where we'd be thinking, but I am so confused. <laughs> I have no idea what the man is talking about. What does this even mean? I mean, you're speaking in English. I get that, but this is like, I have no idea, right? That's the unbelieving mind. They hear what you're saying, but then they don't hear what you're saying. You're using words in English that they understand individually. God, I get that. Heaven, I I get that. Sin, yeah, okay, I get that. But when you string all these words together, it's like a foreign language. They can't understand what you are saying. But you see, the difference is that if we took the time, for most of us, the difference is that if we took the time to study quantum physics, if we started buying books and listening to series, if we took the time to study quantum physics, most of us could begin to understand what this is about. I think most of us could. We could begin to wrap our minds around it. But this is simply because we're dealing with human knowledge. We are human beings who are dealing with human knowledge. But when we talk about the things of God, we are, think, we are talking about spiritual knowledge. Remember, Paul says in 2.11 of our text, For who knows a person's thoughts? except the spirit of that person which is in him. So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. The only one who fully understands and can ever fully understand the things of God is God. Because we're talking about spiritual knowledge, spiritual things, And we are natural individuals. And so, in verse 15, Paul then contrasts the spiritual person with the natural person. He says, the spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. So, what does that mean? The spiritual person judges... Believers, believers judge all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. Is Paul saying that as believers, we should go around just condemning everybody, right? We're supposed to be judgy, judge everyone. And is Paul saying that there's no day of judgment for the believer? That we're to be judged by no one? That there's no 
accountability among believers that we don't judge ourselves? Well, that can't be true because that just flies in the face of Matthew 18 where Jesus says in that passage on church accountability, no matter what kind of soft language you want to use, at the end of the day, church accountability per Matthew 18 is judging one another. Galatians 6.1, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore that person in a spirit of gentleness. It doesn't matter how you want to word that. At the end of the day, it is judging. It is pronouncing a judgment on someone else. Because when you say to someone, I saw you acting in a sinful way and I want to help you, you're making a judgment about their behavior. You were sinning. Some people will get offended by that. The spiritually mature Christian will appreciate it. So what does Paul mean by this? Well, I think it's helpful to know that the Greek word behind judge can also mean to examine or to investigate. This is not the most common Greek word that is used for judging in the way that we think in the New Testament. That word is krino, and that's not the word that Paul is using here. Hence, the New American Standard translates that appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. It really has to do with examining and not so much as judging in a condemning sense. In other words, what Paul is saying, I think, is that only the believer whose mind has been illumined by the Holy Spirit to understand the things of God to possess a biblical worldview, stands in a position to rightly and accurately examine and judge the things of this world. Only the believer possesses the ability to judge the things of the world, to examine the things of the world rightly. This is why unbelievers, this is why unbelievers cannot solve the problems of the world. As the world seeks to solve the problems of racism, social injustice, poverty, human trafficking, domestic violence, gangs, murder, you name it. As the world seeks to solve the world's problems without the Holy Spirit opening their minds to the things of God, they are literally the blind leading the blind. I can't see, and neither can you, but hold my hand and I'll lead us to where we need to go. And they all just keep falling off the same cliff. Only the believer can provide the insights that the world is looking for because only the believer possesses, as Paul will say, the mind of Christ. And the believer himself, he says, is to be judged, that is examined by no one. Interesting phrase. What does that mean? I think what Paul means is that believers judge the world, but the world does not judge us. To be judged by no one, he's saying it doesn't work in the opposite way. 
We rightly judge and examine the world, but the world stands in no position to judge the church. Because, as Paul will say later in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 2 and 3, there he will go on to say, or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? Someday, the saints will sit in judgment with Christ, and we will judge the world and angels. What that means, we'll talk about that when we get to chapter 6, so stay tuned. But here is why this works. Verse 16 of our text. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. So Paul is explaining why this works. First of all, Paul seems to be offering a loose quote of Isaiah chapter 40, verse 13. And it is interesting that Paul cites from Isaiah chapter 40 because the context, the context of Isaiah chapter 40 is that God is promising through the prophet Isaiah, God is promising the nation of Israel that yes, they are going to be carried away into Babylonian captivity because the Babylonians are rising, they're coming to power, they're this ginormous nation over to the east of Israel. And God tells them that they are going to be taken into captivity by the Babylonians, but God will deliver them from the Babylonian captivity. And the Israelites are confused by that because the empire of Babylon is huge. They are ginormous. And Israel is so small. How can this be? Thus, what God is saying to Israel in Isaiah 40, 13 is that his ways are higher than their ways. And his thoughts are beyond their thoughts. The way God operates and the things that God does, the mysteries of God, are beyond the understanding of the human mind. That's what he's saying to the nation of Israel. I know you don't understand how this is going to work. You're just going to have to trust me. Because you cannot fully understand the things of God. But, according to Paul, we have the mind of Christ. We have the mind of Christ. Because of the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, we are able, we are able to think the thoughts that Christ thinks. We are able to think as Christ thought. We are able to know God the Father as Christ knows God the Father because we share in ourselves the Spirit of Christ. And thus, we have the mind of Christ. We can know God the Father just as fully and as accurately as Christ knows God the Father. The only reason we don't now is because our sin gets in the way. We take the word of God, which is perfect and infallible and, in, and inerrant and authoritative, and our sin just messes it all up. Not all of it, 
We get a lot right, but we get a lot wrong because we have this tendency to want to interpret the Bible in light of our own personal preferences. See, I don't, I don't like that verse, so I, I'm going to think that says something else. But someday when we're in heaven, sin won't exist, and we will all understand the Word of God rightly, and we will all humbly submit to His authority and to the Word of God who is Christ Himself. But the point, I think, that Paul is making to the church in Corinth and the point that I am trying to make this morning is this, only the Holy Spirit can cause the unbelieving mind to understand the things of God. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. 2 Corinthians, again, I want to finish that text, and this will be our last passage we'll look at. 2 Corinthians 4, 3 to 6. Now, I read 3 and 4, but let's go down to 6. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light, listen, to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. At the moment that you got saved, at the moment that God saved you, listen, you understood the gospel not because you were smarter than anybody else, but simply because God caused you to understand the light of the knowledge of the glory of Christ. If you're sitting here this morning and this book makes sense to you and what I am saying makes sense to you, it's got nothing to do with you. It's got everything to do with the indwelling power and presence of the Holy Spirit that enables you to understand the things of God. At the end of the day, God gets all the glory. He gets all of it, every ounce of it. We get nothing in terms of personal glory. What we get is Christ. We get Christ. Let's pray. Our gracious God, Heavenly Father, Lord, we stand amazed by your grace. Lord, I stand amazed by, my, by your grace. As I look back at my own conversion, Lord God, I, I am amazed that you would open my eyes to see Christ. Not because I deserved it, not because any of us deserve it, but simply because you are rich in mercy and goodness and love. And Father, we pray that this truth would do two things for us, Lord. We pray that this truth would cause us to give you the worship and the glory that you alone deserve. That everything that we have in this life that is worth counting as good comes from your sovereign hand. But we also pray that it would give us the courage to preach the gospel with boldness.
Lord, recognizing that it's not about us. It's simply about proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ to the world and then letting the Holy Spirit do his work. Father, we pray all these things in Christ's name.